Okay, so we left a question open right at the end of last week, and the question was, how does clothing rectify the sin? We've said many times we're so grateful for the clothing because they help us rectify the sin. We've talked about the chesed of clothing. We've talked about um, how, how clothing helps... Uh, helps with the consequences of the sin, the shame, or if you want to look at it, the converse, the revelation of that which is not to be ashamed of, the way that we choose our clothing for that, um, to, to highlight the honor and respectability of the person, the greatness of the person. But we haven't really touched at all on how does Hashem's giving us clothing actually help to fix the problem. That's the bit we didn't talk about, so hopefully today that will be at least our first topic. Okay, so we're going to begin with a statement from Rav Shimon Schwab, who says, he, he comes to explain what is the purpose or meaning of clothing in general for mankind. So he says, Adam and Chava were not wearing clothing before the sin, as we've mentioned, and they had no sense of shame. The fact that they were naked wasn't a source of shame. That was because their true selves were not identified with their bodies. So in the same way that you're not really ashamed of, you know, if you have a cracked pen, like it's not necessarily a source of shame. Like the pen is cracked. It's not me that's cracked. Mm -hmm. Now, by the way, we can get very attached to our objects. <laughs> you can get to the place where you feel shame about how your stuff looks. That's not necessarily a healthy thing, right? It, it, we do, right? So maybe it's not the pen. Maybe, or maybe I really don't care what my pens like, look like most of the time. But if I go into an important meeting, I want a really good-looking pen because I feel like, what do I feel like? Why do I want to have a really nice I pen in an important good. meeting? Yeah, that, that pen, the way the pen looks, will in some way represent who I am. I'm a person who has nice things. Maybe that means I'm successful. It also means that I pay attention to detail. So, you know, as opposed to like the, the image of the, you know, scatterbrained, absent-minded professor who's got, you know, like the, the buttons are buttoned up wrong and the pen is behind the ear pencils and maybe there's no eraser, right? Because he's thinking about other things so he doesn't pay attention to like detail. So if I want to make a good impression, Right, and I want somebody to in, to invest money in buying my product, so I want them to believe that I do pay attention mm -hmm. to how every little detail looks and works, and you know. So, but but when it gets right down to it, what I'm saying is, I believe that this pen, in some way, is going to represent me. Right, so I'm identifying myself with the pen, for better or for worse. So we all know, you know, you dress for success, and um, you really shouldn't have typos in your resume. I mean, we, we all know that it's important to put a best foot forward. And, but, but again, what we're saying is that in some way, we are going to, either we are identified or someone else will identify us according to these externalities that aren't really part of us, right? So there's some sort of balance there. You know, maybe what we're doing is we're trying to compensate for the blindness, the fact that people, when they look at us, aren't looking at who we really are. In the same way, you have like, um, have you ever heard a, 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 
You ever heard someone say, oh, I would be so nervous, like, I don't think babies are cute, and then when I have my own baby, maybe I won't think they're cute. You ever heard people say this, like, newborns? Maybe they won't bond with the baby. Maybe they won't. And it's like, no, you know, because when, when you care about somebody, first of all, among many other things, when you come to care for someone, it stops being exactly about how they look. You know, when your best friend has a pimple, you just, you don't stop being their best friend. It's really not the main thing. Because when you look at them, the main thing you see is not their skin. It's just not. Even though the, the first thing you see in someone that you don't know might be their skin. But once you get to know somebody, once there's something more in them to see, then you don't fully, you know, if I, I hope that if I came in with like a broken looking pen or, I don't know, like a, like a stain on my finger, well, at least you wouldn't completely judge me according to that because like we go back a little way together. So there would be some more depth to what you would know about me than that, you know, and vice versa. <laughs> but so there is this kind of the, the attention we pay to the way that these things look has to do with our identification with the surface appearance, with the lack of seeing in deeper. Okay, so Adam and Chava, who were not dealing with that, there was no sense of shame because that's not who I am. I'm not like keratin or, you know, dermacell. Like that's not me. That's not who I am. So wouldn't really notice that. That's not really a big deal. By the way, there are some people who get so hung up on how things look. That's how they judge everybody else, including themselves. So maybe they always have it, like they really always look put together. But sometimes it's, it's more than that. It's really too superficial. They're almost like depressing. Like you almost feel like they don't know how to look at anything more than that. That's really sad, too. I don't know if you ever run across someone like that, where they're like, you know, I mean, most people will surprise you by having more depth to them than what it appears, which is a good thing. But sometimes it's, it's a little depressing to meet someone who's like so, so, so. I made that mistake. I judged somebody by their skin. Um, I met a woman who, it was pretty obvious, she'd had pretty extensive plastic surgery, you know, and like, you know, you'd think like at some point, I don't know, 70 years old? Like when, when is the point where you stop wearing the high heels and the leather mini skirts? I'm not sure, you know, but definitely like I, I looked at that and I was like, ah, superficial. Now, that was judgmental of me. It turned out this person had a lot more to them than that. Uh, could be the very superficial about appearance. It could be. But, um, you know, and, I, and one time she was saying something about her shoes and they hurt the high heels. And I was like, why don't you wear flats or something in between, you know, not such high heels. And she said, because if I don't wear the high heels regularly, I won't be able to wear them at all since that bad car accident where I was thrown through the windshield and had to have all the surgery and my legs aren't quite right. And I was like, whoa, what do I know? What do I know, really? You know, so... Uh, you know, using myself as the object lesson here, right? Like, even, you know, it could be that she really is, I mean, you know, I don't know if I myself would have, like, that degree of motivation to keep up my high heel shoes capacity, but, but I was definitely judging her wrong. Definitely. Absolutely had it wrong. There may be some truth to it, but I really had it wrong. You know, the plastic surgery, would she have done it anyway? Would she have had her face lifted 20 times? It could be. It could be. But 
but what do I know? I mean, her face had to be rebuilt. That's not, that's not a sign of her being, you know, like an, an, an outward superficial person. So kind of like qualifying that because I'm, I'm just trying to qualify like sometimes when we learn the lessons the most important thing is just really to learn it about ourselves it's not really you know we look at other people and we judge you know and they're wearing almost nothing and their face is you know looks like a mask because the muscles don't work because of the Botox and you know and like it's it's so easy so on the one hand you want to learn the lessons and on the other hand applying them to other people is a risky business Miriam Adahan gave me once this amazing example. She was going over like an exercise for turning around your thoughts and your judgments. <clears throat> and she gave an example. Let's say you see a girl and she's like really not dressed nicely and you judge her and you think like how could she walk out that way? And then she turns it around and says, well, where are the places where I'm not sneeze in my life? Yeah. And I was like, so for my first reaction, I was like, well, I dress sneezely. And she's like, yeah, but there, I'm sure there are other areas if you notice she's unsneeze where you are in your life where you're unsneeze. Yeah. Like that's interesting. Right. But it's so right on. So. It's very right on. It's very right on. It also can be helpful, kind of like similar to what you said, which is sometimes it's because we're comparing to where we are. But if I would go compare myself to, let's say, some of my neighbors in Matersdorf in Israel, I can't say my level of sneeze is like theirs. I'm not talking about dowdy or not dowdy or whatever, right? I, I, I really can't say that. I can't say. Like, the length of my skirt, I, for the sake of the recording, I wear them very long. <laughs> I'm also very short. <laughs> okay? But that's not always the most sneeze, right? If you're wearing a really long skirt, sometimes the shape of your legs can show. I won't notice it on myself, but I could see it on someone else. Do you see what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I, I'm not, not to get into, like, the politics of, like, one community's definitions of the halachos of tzniyas, just talking about, like, you know, like, you know, I heard, I heard a, a Devar Torah recently where the Rav said, you know, people, people walking around their whole house as if they're walking around the bathroom. But we all have places where we could improve our tzniyas, whatever it is, you know. I remember when I was in camp, one year I showed up in camp, and the very, very the very great Zahava Bronstein, Allah HaShalom, said to me, Sarah, we don't wear our hair loose and flowing like that. Now, I had no idea. I'm like an LA girl. Like, I, I really had no clue, you know? I was like, okay. And I put on a ponytail. I mean, she said it in a way that, that made me feel great. I didn't feel at all looked down on. I didn't feel like, oh, I was so not sneers. What's the matter with me? It wasn't like she said it in such a nice way. And it was no big deal. I just put my hair in a ponytail, you know. But, like, it was a lesson. It was a lesson that, that we think we're sneeistic, and maybe we are. It's good. But before we start going to judge other people, we might say, well, is there someone else, mm. <laughs> you know, looking at me who could say the same thing? And how do I feel about that? My point is not that we need to all go around judging each other and trying to judge ourselves according to other people's standards because that's not necessarily helpful. It's the opposite. How do I feel about it when someone would if someone would judge me? How would I feel about it if someone would say to me, oh, well, that's so, you know, and now let me turn that around and say, so how's this person going to feel if I think that about them? Is it true? You know, maybe nowadays somebody who grows up here in Los Angeles and has, you know, no Jewish education at all, maybe the fact that they're wearing 
you know, a tank top, maybe, maybe it's actually modest. What do I know what they were thinking in the morning? Maybe compared to what all their friends are wearing, you know, now that the crop tops are back in style, maybe the fact that their shirt's tucked in was already a, a decision of modesty, you know? So I've seen a couple of them, including at the trampoline jumping place, which is maybe not the world's most advisable place to wear a crop top. Anyway, yeah, tell me about CS. <laughs> right. So, you know, my point is what we have to do is learn to ourselves. And when we're judging, when we catch ourselves judging other people, which we will do because, we, you know, in order to have a standard, you have to, you're not supposed to be blind to what's going on around you. We do have to recognize what's going on around us. But there's something to be said for trying to frame it the other direction and see how we look when the spotlight shines on us too and how we feel about it. Because that might change how we respond to other people who aren't, maybe they're not in the right place, but how do I feel when I'm not in the right place, right? How would I get, <laughs> I have a friend who once pulled up at a gas station and um, there was someone there who must have been dressed really, really, because you know, like in a gas station, you know, like who could it be already? Like <laughs> how much worse can it be than what's in the street all the time? She opened her trunk, took a sweater out, threw it over this girl's shoulders and said, oh, you poor thing, you lost your clothes and drove away, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> It's funny, this person must have gone home also laughing, but that's a really different way. Now, I, I'm assuming that wasn't Jewish, but I don't know who it was that she decided needed need a little more coverage, but, but the person probably wasn't humiliated and also probably wasn't furious and potentially might have thought about something different when they got dressed the next day, potentially might have like crossed her mind, gee, I wonder how people see me when I'm dressed like that. Might not have changed anything, might have. Like there, there's different ways, you know, so how do I want someone to tell me about stuff? Mm -hmm. yeah. Take another step in that direction, which is definitely not our topic. When I think about how I would want someone to tell me that I'm, that I have room for improvement or that it, it's time for me to improve in that area, it's worth thinking about how I would react. You know, oh, I would want them to say it this way and even let myself act it out in my mind. Because sometimes even when people do tell us more or less the way we want to be told, we don't react so well. Just to the idea that someone's saying we're not perfect. That's just the truth. So it's a good thing, you know, when we catch ourselves judging someone else to use that as a jumping off point how would people look at me? How do I feel about how people look at me? And how can I accept it graciously? Now, Rev Orlowick has spoken about a definition of a professional. And I, I ask his forgiveness in advance because I will, I don't have the definition 100% word for word clear in my mind. So I hope I'm not misrepresenting it even though I surely will misquote him. Um, a professional the more you tell him what needs to be improved, the happier he is. So the example he gives is when he was asked to edit or proofread or correct a book um, for Art Scroll. He says this on tapes, so that's how I know. So I guess it's public information. Um, and he was a little apologetic. He said to Rabbi Sherman, I'm sorry, like I keep sending more and more like corrections. Rabbi Sherman was like, no, no, I'm so happy, send more. The more you find, the better the end product will be, the better the book will be. 
if you catch typo, right? If you own a publishing company, you hire proofreaders, which means you're hiring people to find your mistakes so you can fix them. That's a professional. But that's different than if, like, I mean, a lot of people have a lot of opinions and comments about many things, and it's one person's opinion that might not be valid. It might not be valid. Okay, so here's an approach. An approach goes like this. It says, Ribbono Shalom, I want to become greater. Perhaps it would be a gaiva for me to aspire to become great. But surely I can aspire to become greater than where I am now. And the fact that I woke up this morning means that there's room for me to become greater. You, have, you, you see in me that potential. Otherwise, I wouldn't still be here. So, oh, by the way, the fact that a person passes away is not a comment that they aren't great. It only means now they've moved to a phase of not becoming greater. Sometime we'll talk about it and about the, the power of Kedusha and Kaddish and, and mitzvahs for Ilya Neshama, but that's, that's really not our topic today. Rebona Shalom, I, I want to become greater. I want, I want you to look at me and be happy with what you see. I want to know that I'm living my life productively and, and doing something with this chasodim that you've given me, the mitzvahs and the... I want to make use of them, but I don't know how. I don't, I don't necessarily know how to become greater than I am. So please tell me gently. That means help me read, read the right books that will inform me. So I read something, and I hear, and I'm informed, and then I'm able to integrate some of that, right? If I read a book about halacha, so then I know something more. That's, that's a pretty gentle way of hearing. By the way, some people can't handle that either. Right? So this is about opening up ourselves to saying, no, this is actually what I want. This is what I aspire to. I want to be a professional human. <laughs> I want to do a great job with it and have a great product. Right? I, maybe that the people who, in whom I feel complete confidence that they love me and care about me should be the ones who tell me if there's something I need to fix, because that could be less painful sometimes. And here, so, but that's the opposite. Because sometimes when people who we care about make a comment or they criticize us, we get, we get so explosive. Like, why are you telling me? You always do it to me too, right? But really, maybe, I mean, everything that happens to me is something that Hashem has sent to be within my environment. So that I, otherwise, I wouldn't know about it. If it happened to somebody else, I wouldn't know about it. Anything that I become aware of means there's something I could learn from it. So I can't become like obsessive compulsive because I'm not, at, it would, that's what it would be. I'm not at the level of evaluating every single thing that comes into my line of sight. I'm not at that level. But at least on the, like the kind of bigger things, you know, I could say, okay, wait, what am I supposed to, what are you telling me? It's not about, you know, this, this cousin or this spouse or this best friend telling me something, right? Actually, I could count on them to care about me, which means you're telling me something. Maybe I need to learn it. Maybe I really am being a little bit too judgmental or impatient or not listening or interrupting. Maybe I am. So maybe you're telling me something. Now, it could be that what, what I'm being told is something different. Like you said, sometimes people are giving an opinion and they're wrong. Right? So somebody's telling me, um, I don't know, you should never wear that color or you should, I don't know, whatever it is. And maybe they're wrong. So I have to hear, like, it doesn't mean that everything someone says to me I have to accept as being correct. 
It's just that everything someone says to me, I have to accept as being Hashem telling me something. It could be that what he's telling me is that I need to reevaluate this issue, even if I end up at the same conclusion, because there is such an idea, right? Somebody once asked, I'm trying to remember if I heard this on a tape from Rabbi Orlowick or if I heard Rabbi Goldberg say it in Rabbi Orlowick's name like 25 years ago. <laughs> now I'm not sure. It could be it's both. Um, somebody was saying, isn't it a good sign when things are going smoothly? Right? So, you, so the, like the really simple example is, you know, you're going somewhere and all the lights are green. <laughs> all the lights are green. But sometimes it isn't only that, right? Sometimes it's big stuff. Things are really going smoothly. Like you start to make a deal and it goes really well. And, mm -hmm. Right? Like doesn't that mean you're on the right track? God is helping you. It shows you're on the right track. Which suggests that the opposite would be true. If that's true. If that's true. If, 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 if that's true. It's not then that would mean the opposite were also true. That when you're going somewhere and you get every single red light and you run out of gas and have to stop for gas and now you're really late and then you get there and discover you have a big run in your stocking that you're doing the wrong thing. And it doesn't. I mean, it's, it's so obvious that it doesn't mean that, right? And we also know that sometimes the, the most important things in life take the most effort. We have to overcome hurdle after hurdle after hurdle. Mm -hmm. hurdle. And seven times it saw the falls and keeps getting up. And so, so what can you make of the fact that sometimes things seem to be going exceptionally smoothly and sometimes things seem to be going exceptionally difficultly? So there's a couple of things we could take from that. One thing we can take from that is that there's a purpose in things in challenge. There's a purpose in obstacles because God really can make things happen without any obstacles, which means challenges are there intentionally. Obstacles are there intentionally. That's number one. It's a very, very helpful thought. It also means that when you're doing the right thing and you think there's no way this can work out because we'll never get there in time and we'll never, you never. Hashem can make everything also go smoothly. It's up to him, right? So don't, like, chill. Like, it's okay, right? Okay. The other thing we learned from it is that when things are going super, super smoothly, that's a time to notice it and be grateful. When things are going super, super not smoothly and things are rough and everywhere you turn you seem to be hitting another brick wall, it doesn't mean you're on the wrong path. It means Hashem is telling you you need to reconsider your path. That's what it means. When they're not going smoothly, it does not mean you're on the wrong path path. It only means you need to reconsider your path. Okay. So does it mean you're not on the right path or does it mean that it does not mean you're on the wrong path or the right path. It means Hashem wants you to reconsider it. Hashem is wanting you to reconsider He's, the that's path the you're message. taking or the end goal you're trying to All reach. of it. The whole thing. The whole process. Yeah, the, the whole thing. thing. Like reconsider for what purpose? That you have to discover. I don't have any, I don't have an answer for it. So it could be perfectly the right thing. It could be happening. that you rethink it through and you conclude, yes, this is the right thing. I should keep trying. The, the signal of things aren't working out is you need to think it through again. You will get some kind of greater clarity when you think it through again. Maybe I'm doing the right thing, but maybe my intentions weren't perfectly right. 
maybe I'm doing the right thing and my intentions were right. And by working harder on it, I'll have more ownership of it. You know, $10 that you pick up in the street doesn't mean to you what the first $10 that you earned, you know, opening your new restaurant means to you. You're not going to hang on the wall a $10 bill you found on the floor, right? There's a certain ownership, a certain pride in, the, in what you work harder on that you would never give it up. Maybe you're doing the right thing and you have the right intentions and, and you have to work harder to get, it, to get it right. Torah is acquired that way. You do have to work hard to get it. You do have to plug at it. And there are times when it seems to be challenging and you feel like you've plateaued and you're having trouble going forward. Eretz Yisrael is acquired that way. All good stuff is acquired with extra work and effort. That's so that you can have real acquisition of it. What in English we'd call ownership. It doesn't mean the title deed, right? Say, he owns the process. You know, when you let a kid actually make the cake and you don't keep reaching over and like adjusting their hands and fixing what they did, they own that cake. They own that cake in a way they don't when you help them. Right, so that's true for all of us in everything. We own stuff in a way, right? That's what's called nicknames. Eretz Yisrael nicknames Eretz Yisrael is acquired, it's owned through the challenge. That, that's how you acquire it. It's by going through it and making some mistakes and trying again and trying again. It's becoming a tzaddik by falling seven times first. This is, uh, the, it doesn't mean you were on the wrong path. The tzaddik wasn't on the wrong path. The tzaddik's on the right path. So, you, you know, whether the answer to your reconsideration is maybe I'm on the right path, maybe I'm on the wrong path, maybe I'm basically on the right path, but I need to be doing something differently, I need to be taking someone along with me, I needed to have a more selfless intention in what I was doing, I needed maybe my timing's right, maybe my timing's wrong. It, I know that in some ways this doesn't sound like what's the helpful tip then if I don't know what to do with it, right? But the reevaluation is a helpful process by itself. But can it even be something like, I went forward with this, but I didn't ask Hashem like, for his help or if this is what he wants? Absolutely. Absolutely. I could be doing the right thing. I could be helping somebody out. And I could even be doing it selflessly, not thinking, oh, I'm going to feel so good about myself, that I'm such a good helper person and so righteous. But I could have been making an assumption in my mind without realizing it, that it's me who's doing it. I'm the one who's coming, I'm the one who's putting in all the energy, and if it's, if it's successful, it's because I did it. One of the cues to that is if my assumption is that if I fail, it's all my fault. Sound familiar? Yeah. <laughs> Just a little bit. If I fail, it's all my fault, does actually kind of mean that if I'm successful, it's my credit. It does. Okay, so maybe I needed to just stop and remind myself that it's not my energy that's going to make this happen. It's Hashem's energy flowing through me that's going to make this happen. Yeah? So it's His will that I'm trying to perform, not my will. Which would lead me to do something like make a bracha first. Say a parak of Tehillim before I set out on the road. Right? Say a little prayer in my own words. Hashem, please help me help her to get better. Whatever. Yeah? That, that would be, I would say, a pretty common reevaluation point. But it's not always exactly that. Sometimes we reevaluate, and it's like, no, maybe I shouldn't be going here at all. Maybe they, all the lights are red because God doesn't want me to get there, right? It doesn't have to be because some airplane is, you know. 
like those stories. Just be like, that's not where I'm meant to be. Could be it's not where I'm meant to be. But, but that I can't do anything about. So that, <laughs> what Hashem plans and what's going to happen, so that's not under my control. That's not for me to evaluate. But if it's really not meant to be, then I would still miss the plane, right? Exactly. So I, so I wouldn't have to turn around in order to, know, to, in order to miss the plane. That's right. So am I, am I doing, is this the right reasons? Am I going for the right reasons? Is my faith in the right place and the right strength? You know, is it, did I ask a Shiloh? Is this really the behavior? Maybe I'm doing something that would be the right thing to do if it weren't for the fact that there's a different obligation that I really was supposed to be doing. <laughs> maybe like it's a really, it's a wonderful thing that I'm cooking all these dinners for all these people, but maybe I was really supposed to be um, visiting a Shiva home. Like, were my priorities in the right place? Uh, there's, there's so many factors that can come in. Okay. So, <clears throat> get back to, to where we were. Identification <laughs> with our bodies. That's where we started. <laughs> All right. The shame of, of realizing that we've sinned is the shame of realizing that our animal nature was allowed to determine our behavior, right? So we're, we're covering up mm -hmm. that animal nature. What that means, though, is, this is back to, to what Rav Schwab says in Rav Schwab on prayer. He doesn't say it on Malbish Arumim. He says it about tzitzis in Shema. Mm -hmm. What that means is that the fact that a person is wearing clothing is a statement that humans are elevated over animals. Not just that within the individual human, the spiritual is greater than the animal, but that on a global level, on a population level, <coughs> humans are elevated over animals. We have the ability to control ourselves. Animal doesn't have the ability really to control itself. Right? The only way that an animal can have control over itself is by pitting two different instincts against each other and one of them winning out. Right? Maybe an, an instinct to, excuse me, an instinct to, um, to conform to the herd might overcome an, an instinct to run off in some other direction or to the pack, you know, like with a dog. Dogs will do an incredible amount of conforming if they're trained for it. But it's training and it's instinct. That's what you're, what you're doing is you're leveraging their instinct to do the training. Right? They're not, a dog can't say, here's what I want to do, but what I really should do is something else completely and then go do that. It's just not in their capacity. It's not expected of them either. They don't have to wear clothes. Right? We have to wear clothes to show that, to, to show, to represent to ourselves and to remind ourselves and to maintain awareness of ourselves that we are not animals. And we have the ability to control ourselves. Again, Sometimes you make a statement, and what it does is it suggests something else. <clears throat> the fact that clothing means that we can control ourselves, our animal natures, means we have an animal nature. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Okay. Which means that God gave us an animal nature. Mm -hmm. So it's not that the animal nature is what we're ashamed of. That's God-given. This is very, very deep and important point, okay? We're not ashamed of our animal nature. That's God-given. 
Shame comes from not controlling our animal nature. Not from having it, but from not controlling it, from letting the animal nature control us. That's shameful. But having an animal nature is not shameful. That's God-given. Okay, so the way he puts it is, man has an animal body with all its desires and urges. He has the unique ability to control them. He even has the ability to elevate and sanctify these urges. That's why I wrote elevate and sanctify. It's not that our goal is to deny them, get rid of them, necessarily, okay, or be ashamed of them. It's to elevate and to sanctify. That's a deep topic. We definitely won't go there today, but it's worth having in your mind, and just having it in your mind, you will see when you hear Shurim, when you read something, when you hear a Dvar Torah on Travis, when you... When you're reading the Parsha, you'll see this theme is there. So we cover the animal side of our personality. That's a way of controlling it, with the exception of the head, where our spiritual faculties are concentrated, and the hands which HaKadosh Baruch Hu has given us to control the world. This is the concept of clothing for all human beings. Did you write that? I wrote that. Yeah, I know, what a coincidence. You'll see it everywhere, right? <laughs> I mention it, and suddenly you start seeing it everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is the concept of clothing for all human beings. Eventually, Amir Hashem will get to talking about tzitzis. Tzitzis is, reaches beyond that, literally, mm-hmm. right? Tzitzis reach beyond the clothing. Mm-hmm. That's what they're for. So this is the, yet another level that is a Jewish level that reaches beyond clothing for all humanity. But right now we're talking about clothing. This is universal. Okay, let me... Can I ask you a question? Sorry. Yeah, so sure. This, this sure. desire of, uh, 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 it sounds like there's a desire to control the animalistic part. Yeah. That desire is God-given, and the way we control it, or lack of control, lack of controlling it is what's shameful. That's almost universal about any type of desire we have, right? Like if you, if you have a desire to drink, but you cannot control yourself, and you basically just destroy your liver, or... Mm-hmm. It is so. So in a way, God has given us all these things, but then it's up, to, and, and He has also given us the ability to be able to do it. So we're, we, what we are supposed to like be conscientious of is always do it to the right level. Don't go to the extreme of abusing it. Is is that the point? Is not that you have to activate or allow any particular urge to be materialized. A person who's an alcoholic, look, some pe- I, I know somebody who's pretty sure she's an alcoholic. Why do I say pretty sure? Because she does not touch alcohol mm-hmm. at all. Her mother was alcoholic, and that was a terrible burden, and she, she doesn't touch it. She's not going to ever find out for real how, <laughs> how addictive mm-hmm. it would be for her. She won't go near it. That's a choice. That's a choice. Now, some people, though, don't have that advantage, let's say, the advantage of a very difficult beginning. Right. So they do drink. Maybe it starts with Kiddush and then some Chastora or Purim or, you know, and there's more and more alcohol, and then they, you know, have one particular crisis and things are really tough for them at that time. 
and they have a little drink and it helps relax them and then they feel better, you know, and then this kind of builds on itself right. and, and they get, you know. So, I mean, that's just like sort of a blatant example of the stuff we all do all the time. Maybe it's with food or maybe it's with shopping or maybe it's with whatever we use to try and soothe or distract ourselves, our cell phones, our whatever it is we use to try and soothe and distract ourselves instead of tackling our actual issues. We could all have some type maybe of addictive behaviors that we would fall back on, but we might not do it because we're making other choices. Correct. Okay. But what happens, I think what you're saying is what happens when you're in the middle of it? What if it's not about like, well, before the Taiva starts, I'm making a choice, but now, right. now how do I get out of it? So that's really the, pro I mean, first of all, that's to a great extent the process of tshuva, mm -hmm. which is a process of saying, of being able to recognize that what I'm doing is wrong, mm -hmm. to allow myself to feel deep regret, realize what, what I've lost, what I'm missing, what have I become, that's painful, that's really hard. That's shame. Where have I, mean, I come to? It, Where am I, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, this is the big driver. Without allowing ourselves to feel that deep shame, it's very difficult to make real corrections. You don't have to feel it if you're making your choices up front intellectually before you get to the Taiva stage. Right. But once you've already gotten into it, the ability to feel the shame, and, and it's not necessarily helpful to have, I'm not saying people shouldn't go to psychologists because some of them are really amazing. Mm -hmm. But you know, to go to a psychologist is gonna just try and help you not feel ashamed because they have some kind of belief that shame is bad isn't gonna help you, right? right? What you need to do is have your shame get you somewhere to say, look what I've become. Right? Look at the discrepancy between who I could be and what I am. That leads to a change of my will. I don't want to be like that. I want to be someone different. I don't want to be the mom in the commercial who's looking at my phone while the toddler falls off the play equipment. I don't want to be the, I, I have this, this old Windows commercial that I've done for like seminary things. I don't want to be you know, the, the couple that's sitting at the table texting face-to-face -face over a candlelit, right? That's not who I want to be. What has happened to me? Where, where am I connected to anybody? I don't want to be a person who's bankrupt and has the house repossessed because I couldn't stop shopping. I don't want to be that. What I want to be is in control what I want to be is, right, this is, this is the beginning of the process of Akira Saratson, uprooting the will, the will that was wrong and up, uprooting it and replacing it with a will that is right, right? We get, I mean, all sin comes from foolishness. That's a chazal. Okay, that's not me making it up, right? A person, why do we sin? We sin because we're looking really in the short term. I want to feel better for the next five minutes. Not realizing that when you build up all those five minutes is you've lost your whole life unto it. That's what happens. I mean, if you think about it, that's what happens to an alcoholic. We all know the pattern. It's well-intentioned. They come home crying, right? I'm so sorry. They bring presents to the kids. Yeah, we know about this. And we know that, oh, you know, abusive, abusive husbands, right? Probably abusive wives, too. Abusive husbands are just more famous. 
right? And we, oh, they're so sorry, they promise they'll never do it again, and maybe they really mean it, but they haven't uprooted the problem. Mm -hmm. They haven't tackled, like, what happens when I feel, because that's the next step. When you change your will, when you feel shame and you change your will, then comes, what can I do differently to make sure I'm not tempted again? I don't want to go there. Yes, it would be marvelous to be someone who could sit with a full wallet in a casino and not gamble. But now that I've lost my whole month's rent on it once and been evicted, maybe I won't drive through Las Vegas on my way to New York. Which is the smarter decision? You know, do we say, oh, no, you have, to, you have to go to Las Vegas and you have to actually go into a casino and sit there with your wallet full and hold back. It's like, that's stupid. I need to have a pound of M&Ms in my house and hold back. That's right, because what's it worth if they're not even there? That doesn't prove that I'm, no. Like, the smart thing is you don't buy it. You eat something before you go to the supermarket. You order your groceries maybe online so that you don't have to see the M&Ms in the first place. And you avoid, right? That's a plan, though. That's not just avoidance, right? That's called making a plan. Because I don't want to get there again. I want to be somewhere else. So I make a plan. And I aim for that. And then, actually, chuva may be complete when you've made that plan and put it into place. And sometimes you'll be successful and sometimes not, but you can start tracking it and you can say, you know what, more and more often I am being successful, this is working, maybe it's not working well enough, I need to tweak the plan, right? But it's a plan and you go with it and you can see that you're making progress. Now, the, the sort of the fifth step of chuva is kind of optional. Optional is the wrong word. The fifth step of chuva is if you come to the same type of situation again, that you don't do the sin again. That's the proof that you've, in truth, uprooted the will. But you don't put yourself there, and tshuva can be complete without it. That's a halacha. Mm -hmm. That's a halacha. Your tshuva's complete after the first four steps. You don't need, you don't need to, to actually face the sin again and not do it. It's a gift if you can. That's why we see things like, the, you know, with Yosef and his brothers, that he, he kind of pushed them into the same situation with Binyamin, right, with another younger brother. He put them into the same situation where are they going to be willing to really put everything on the line to protect their brother and to consider the, how their father's going to feel, you know, in order for them to have a complete, complete like the totally most complete possible tshuva by, you know, that's because he, he perceived that they were ready for that. I mean, that's not, we don't put ourselves in those positions intentionally. Okay. okay. And, and the reason we don't is, if we did, what would that say about how passionately we didn't want to fail again, right? I mean, if you really, really, you know, if you have lost your house in a casino, you really don't want to go through Vegas. You don't want to go into Nevada, right? Because every gas station is a slot machine. Like, you don't want to go there. Yes, now you get to this point that even the offer you to do some kind of mitzvah, that's right. That's right. You might say, I'm afraid I can't take a job in the Las Vegas Colo. Maybe for you. Now, there's some people it's not an issue for at all. Like, just not a big deal. They're not tempted by it. They don't go there. It's just not their thing. But we all have something. It's just not necessarily gambling. Mm -hmm. We've all got something. Okay. All right. Thank so you. let me just, I just want to close with one point to go forward on, which is at the end of Parsha's bow, 
there's a very, uh, it's one of those cultural literacy pieces that, that Rabbi Goldberg talks about only, especially in this time frame, we're not going to get the whole Ramban, but it's worth reading and sometime we'll do it all. We'll, do, we'll go through the whole thing because a lot of key points there. Um, but one of the points that he makes there is when a person does even a small mitzvah, okay, we're talking, for example, about how I choose my clothes in the morning or how I choose my clothes in the store <clears throat> or when I put on the clothes and I realize, you know, could be it's a little tight <laughs> for, you know, it might not be a halachic, it might be covering everything, but it might be revealing it even while it's covering it. Maybe that's not where I'm holding. And therefore, instead of putting it back in the closet, I put it in a giveaway box, right? These are decisions. This is how we make decisions. When we choose to do something like that, it can be a small mitzvah. The example he gives is hanging a mezuzah. That's for other reasons. We'll get there someday. When you do the mitzvah, because not because of what everyone will say about you, but because there's a God. I'm not, I don't want to, you know, like I don't think Hashem wants, I, I, want, I want to be better in God's eyes, right? That aspiration to be greater than I am. Let, let's set aside being great. Let me be greater, greaterness. I'm aspiring to greaterness. When I do that because there's a God, no matter how small my action is, how small my mitzvah is, how small my decision is, it is a testimony to the fact that the world has a creator and that the creator knows about and is involved with human affairs and communicates to us through Nevi'im and through Torah. It's, it's an atom, but it's full of atomic power when set free. We do something so small we are testifying to the existence of God, his presence, his involvement in the world, and his creation of the world. And therefore, Chazal have taught us, have a zahir b'mitzvah You should be as careful with a light mitzvah as a, as a heavy mitzvah, as a strict mitzvah. Because they are all chamudos v'chavivos me'od. They are all really sweet and beloved. Every mitzvah is a chance, not a chance for someone to hound me. It's not that it's a chance for me to feel guilty until I finally just get it done. And it's a burden and, oh, let me get that behind me so I can do something more. And every mitzvah is an opportunity to stand up in my own little world and say, Hashem, you are the king, you created the world, and I know it. Every time my behavior is affected by the fact that there's a God, that's a testimony to him. And this... One, one intention that is behind every mitzvah is that we will trust in God, believe in him, we will, we will thank him for creating us, and this is the purpose of creation. This is, this is what we're here for, whether the big or the small. Okay? So, Emrit Hashem, next week we'll move on. I still want to get to whatever happened to those clothes God made, Adam and Chava. That's cool, right? Yeah, that is cool. Okay, so I, I, I will send an email out, but my plan right now is that I will have Shear this coming Tuesday, but not the two Tuesdays following that. I'll be away. Okay. Okay? Or at least I'm, I, maybe I'm coming back on a Tuesday morning, but I... You can, uh,
it's ambitious enough to think about trying to do the shear right before I leave, but to do it when I come off a plane. No, you know, I've done I've done crazier things. If I could do that for a patent for a patent hearing, why shouldn't I be able to do it for a shear? Really? Are you flying direct? Yeah. It's such a long flight. It's a long flight. I just I don't want to I don't want to be stupid, you know, about committing to something that I'm not able to actually do. But, you know, when I know I have to actually perform for eight hours at a patent hearing, I also will insist on being upgraded to business class, and I'm not sure I'm going to do that for this flight. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we have to make allowances upon arrival. How do you do that? Do what? Get upgraded to business class. Uh, you get your boss to pay for it, because, <laughs> because they're sending you to perform, and if you have to get right, off right. a 15-hour flight and... Uh, What's the 